Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome back to Behind the Knife, and uh, this week we are going to have another uh, mock oral scenario today, and one of the uh, feedback we got from listeners is in some of their mock oral scenarios, they've been having some thoracic cases, and depending on the program you're at, there's more or less uh, thoracic exposure. Um, and so today we have Dr. Burfield, Chief of Thoracic Surgery at the Seattle VA, and uh, Wu Doe actually worked with her while he was on his thoracic rotation out there and, and asked her, and she was uh, generous enough to spend part of her Sunday afternoon with us. So uh, thank you, Dr. Burfield, for joining us on Behind the Knife. Of course, happy to. So before we begin, actually, there's a slight piece of lore that we wanted to confirm with you, Dr. Burfield. We've heard that when you were a thoracic surgery fellow at the University of Washington, uh, you once completed a bilateral lung transplant with a co-fellow in three hours. Is that correct? Oh, that is true. You, have, were you talking to Justin Walters? We were. <laughs> yes, that, that is definitely a highlight of our residency. <laughs> <laughs> and just for our listeners out there, you are actually the first graduate of the uh, cardiothoracic uh, residency at University of Washington. Is that correct? I, I am. So I'm the first in the integrated thoracic program at the UW. Yeah. And, and how long is that at, at UW? It is a six-year residency. A six-year residency, and then yeah, they they kept nice. you on as staff afterwards. Correct. Yes, I was fortunate enough to get to stay. That's awesome. So, Dr. Burfield, uh, let's dive right in. I'll be the first sacrificial lamb here. All right. Well. Um. Okay. So, our first scenario is a 42-year-old woman who had a head trauma in a motor vehicle collision about a month ago. Um, ultimately ended up vent-dependent and is now three weeks uh, status post-tracheostomy uh, by the trauma service. Um, and you are the resident on call, and you were called because of brisk bleeding coming out of her tracheostomy appliance. Mm, so I would definitely have a uh, high alarm or concern here. Um, the leading item on my differential is a bleeding from a tracheonominate fistula, so massive hemoptysis. Um, while I'm on the phone with the nurse that has called me, I would uh, ask her if she can uh, overinflate the cuff, uh, and I would quickly make my way down to the patient and assess uh, the vital signs as well as his ABCs. All right. Excellent. So upon arrival at the bedside, you find that the hyperinflation of the cuff did work a little bit, so she's not totally exsanguinating. Um, the patient, however, is tachycardic, currently normotensive. There's about 700 cc's of blood in the suction canister. Her oxygen saturation is 96% on a 50% FiO2. Uh, and what do you want to do now? Okay, boy. So um, the patient does sound somewhat stabilized, but I'm also very concerned that this needs to go into the operating room. Um, I would alert uh, all of the means I have to get anesthesia um, and all the help that I can get. I would alert my attending. Um, my next move would actually be to place my finger through the stoma uh, and direct it kind of downwards towards the xiphoid process and lift up anteriorly with my finger to try to compress what I presume is the location of this tracheonominate fistula. Um, when I do that maneuver, do I get any more control of the bleeding? Yes, you do. Okay. So with my finger in that position, um, I would certainly be asking for help to make sure this patient is adequately lined up, uh, that she has two large bore peripheral IVs at least, um, I would have massive transfusion protocol initiated. Uh, and I'd try to get our uh, team mobilized down to the OR as soon as possible. Okay, so you make it down to the OR. Okay. Uh, at this point, um, with anesthesia and all the help around me, um, I'd want to try to get a more definitive airway access across this. 
Okay. Am I able to orotracheally intubate um, across the stoma? Yeah, how would you do that? Uh, I would have anesthesia from above try to do it orotracheally. Okay. So they're able to advance the, or get the airway or the endotracheal tube into the trachea, um, but your finger and the tracheostomy appliance are still in there. So I mm-hmm. assume you're going to take it out? Um, so I'm going to start by taking out the tracheostomy and but leaving my finger in there. Um, so bleeding is better controlled. Um, and where are you going to place the tip of your endotracheal tube? Or ask anesthesia to put their, their tip of their endotracheal tube. Uh, I think I would try to go just about two centimeters um, proximal to the carina. All right. Sounds good. All right. So with the, the endotracheal tube in place and uh, your finger in there so far, bleeding seems controlled. They have all the access they want. The nurses have astutely prepped and draped the patient, and what is your plan in terms of um, proceeding with repair of or evaluation of what you think is a tracheal uh, nominate fistula? Uh, so at this point, um, with my finger prepped in, what I want my team to help me do is uh, make an incision directly overlying my finger and just carefully go down until we encounter the um, fistula and just try to ligate that fistula. Okay, what incision are you, so uh, are you just making a skin incision or are you, what kind of incision are you making? Like what is your what uh, is your plan in order to be able to get access to the anomalous artery? Gotcha. Um, I have a high suspicion that this is not going to be controlled with just a skin incision and that it's actually going to need to go down through a medium sternotomy. All right, perfect. So describe your sternotomy to me, and then kind of what you're gonna, what you're thinking and looking for. Uh, so okay, as I go down through the skin and soft tissue, um, I'm just gonna uh, try to uh, create enough of a space above the level um, of the superior most portion of the sternum, so that I could get a a saw um, and take the saw from cephalad to caudad, um, and once they go through and I put in the retractors, I should be able to uh, be looking directly upon the anominate. Um, and I hope that once I'm there, uh, the anatomy, once I clear the anatomy around, will be a little bit more uh, clear to me where the fistula is. Okay. So you've done your sternotomy then, you've divided thymus and prepericardial tissue, fat. Um, your anominate vein has been retracted superiorly so that you can see your anominate mm-hmm. artery. Um, and then how are you going to obtain, th- then what are you going to do? Um, then just general principles, I'd want to try to get uh, some, uh, get maybe like a pox tie around proximally and distally so that uh, once I let go of where my finger is, that if I pull up, I can kind of occlude that bleeding, um, okay. get proximal distal control, and then just identify the fistula and, and ligate that fistula. Okay. Um, so that bottom, the underside of the artery is pretty adherent and kind of stuck to trachea. Hmm. <laughs> At that point, uh, <laughs> I would certainly hope that there was some additional help to help me figure out what to do next. Okay. Um, so additional help arrives and helps you dissect the artery free from the trachea. Um, you said you, and then how are you going to ligate your artery? What are you going to do? Uh, so I would take a um, silk suture um, or another permanent suture and, and pass it through uh, the center and then kind of wrap it around in one direction and then uh, in, in a counter direction as well um, in order to get a good uh, ligation around 360 degrees. Okay. Um, and then what are you going to do with the trachea? So at that point, the stoma is still there. Um, 
I think that it'd be nice to get some sort of healthy tissue. Um, I'm trying to think what I could use um, some tissue around there to to buttress or, or to even just interpose so that um, the likelihood of another fistula developing is, is decreased, but I'm struggling to come up with that right now. Okay. Um, how would you close your trachea? Like, how would you close your defect? Uh, so I would try to close the defect in an interrupted fashion uh, and then okay. try to buttress that repair. Great. Um, so you're going to use three ovicral sutures to repair your tracheal defect. And then since this patient fortunately has some nice thymus tissue there, you're going to use that thymus to kind of buttress your repair then. Uh, um, all righty. Uh, and then um, how are you going to manage this patient postoperatively? Uh, so postoperatively, uh, I'm going to continue uh, airway management with the um, ET tube that was placed uh, intraoperatively. Um, I'm going to, uh, ideally there would be, I think, a drain um, that was left before we left the operating room that would kind of serve as an early detection system. Um, and I think I would wait um, at least seven to 10 days before I do any sort of manipulation. but. At some point, I'm going to want to do a bronchoscopy to evaluate the uh, integrity of the repair. Okay. So now what happens, so alternative scenario. So what happens when you get in there and you see that um, she has a bovine arch? Um, yeah, I have to admit that I'm not sure. Okay. Essentially, you could do the same thing. You get distal proximate control of the carotid as well. Uh -huh. okay. okay. Next scenario. Um, so this is a 54-year-old woman who has rheumatoid arthritis, and she is on Remicade. And she had, presents to the emergency room with two weeks of cough, uh, progressive mm -hmm. shortness of breath, and pleuritic chest pain. Uh, the ER doc uh, got a chest x-ray, and she has a moderate effusion uh, and some consolidation in her uh, right lower lobe. Uh, and they called you uh, to help manage this patient. It sounds like an immunocompromised patient with risk factors uh, for infection, um, has a right lower lobe consolidation and an associated diffusion. Okay, so um, I would go down to the ER and as I'm going into the patient's room, I'd want to quickly ascertain how sick this patient appears. I'd look at vitals, assess her ABCs, ensure she has adequate IV access and has resuscitation ongoing. Okay. She's on a liter of oxygen. Vital signs are stable. She's asubrile. White count is 18. Okay. Uh, so I, at this point, I do a, a focused history. Um, and apart from what you had mentioned about her being on Remicade and having rheumatoid arthritis, uh, does she have any other past medical history that's pertinent, or um, can she tell me anything more about associated symptoms um, or anything other than the duration of this being two weeks? Yeah, so she doesn't have any other significant medical history. Um, she's not had any uh, intrathoracic surgeries or otherwise. And, and really, she said she started feeling poorly a couple weeks ago. Uh, got a cold from her uh, granddaughter, and has been coughing since, um, and and finally got to the point where she was having some shortness of breath and pain that she wanted. She felt like she should go into the ER. Okay, so at this point, I'd moved to a focused physical exam, uh, specifically looking for a cardiopulmonary exam, um, and then you know checking for any sort of epigastric tenderness that she might have that's misconstrued as as thoracic uh, chest pain. Okay. Um, so left lung sounds fine. Heart sounds fine. She's got some decreased breath sounds on the right. Uh, and no, she's maybe a little focally tender if you palpate her right side, but no, no epigastric pain. Okay. Um, so at this point, I understand she's already had some imaging and some labs. You mentioned the white count and the chest x-ray. Yep. Um, I'd want to next do a uh, 
non-contrast CT of the chest. Okay. Um, so the CT chest shows that she's got a um, intraparenchymal infiltrate in the right lower lobe. Uh, she, her lung isn't completely expanded because she has a moderate-sized uh, uh, effusion. Okay. So at this point, my leading differential is a parent-mnemonic effusion, um, probably an empyema. Mm -hmm. um, uh, with what I know about the time course of these effusions, uh, she's about two weeks out, and so would be probably beyond the initial uh, exudative phase going on into uh, maybe the uh, organizing phase or, or just before then. Um, mm -hmm. So given that, um, I think that maybe a chest tube could potentially work, um, and it would give us a, a trial, I think, before we commit someone who is immunocompromised on uh, to surgery. But that said, I do what I would consider VATS early. Um, so I discussed those options with her, uh, but I think I would recommend uh, starting with a chest tube. Okay, what kind of chest tube are you going to place? Uh, I would place a chest tube that was large enough to drain out what I suspect is pus, and that would facilitate me putting. Uh, intrapleural TPN dornase at some point. So I, I think I'd do at least a 28 French, probably about a 28 French. Okay. So you put a 28 French uh, chest tube in her right side and end up getting um, fluid that's kind of purulent appearing. Are you, what do you want to do then? Uh, so first, um, having gotten that fluid out, I want to send, send the um, pleural fluid for studies. Uh, Specifically, I'd want to test for uh, gram-stain culture that's aerobic, anaerobic, as well as fungal and acid fast uh, to check for okay. TB. Um, uh, and then after I send those studies, I'd start her on antibiotics. Um, uh, and then I'd admit her and just kind of observe how she, uh, over the course of the next uh, couple hours or so, how she responds to this. Um, and then... I think in the next morning, I would repeat a chest x-ray to see, or at least a couple hours later, I'd repeat a chest x-ray to see if there's any degree of improvement in the um, lung expansion. Okay. Uh, so gram stain is 4 plus GPCs. Um, fungal culture isn't back yet. Acid fast isn't back yet. You started her on some ceftriaxone. Uh, her chest tube drained about 100 cc's of fluid. And her follow-up chest x-ray is largely unchanged. Okay. Uh, so given that the findings are unchanged, um, I would, I think I would try a short course of intrapleural TPA and Dornase. Um, I suspect there are loculations um, that are preventing the lung from completely re-expanding. Um, and so I would, I would try about 12 hours apart a couple iterations of TPA and Dornase intrapleurally. Okay. Um, so when you put the TPA and Dornase in, um, she has significant pain uh, with the installation, uh, and you only get about 100 cc's out of kind of bloody, serosanguinous, purulent-looking fluid. Okay. So at this point, I think the pain um, that I've seen associated with this can be quite dramatic, and so I would not necessarily be too alarmed with that, but I would want to help control her pain. Um, I would do, I think I would continue with this for about another 24 hours and then repeat a CT non-con to see if there's any degree of improvement before committing her to a next step. Okay, um, so you continued and you got 50 cc's out, which is about the volume of the TPA and Dornase that you put in, and her CT scan shows that her lung is still trapped and she still has a loculated effusion. Okay. Um, so at this point, I'd approach the patient and discuss with her that um, I my leading suspicion is that the lung continues to be entrapped due to loculations and organization that 
uh, is not being broken up adequately, um, that this was a um, good trial at a non-operative uh, approach, but I do think that she's going to benefit from uh, an operative attempt to fully re-expand her lung. Um, so I would uh, consent her for a, um, I believe this is right side, so uh, a right-sided VAT, uh, maybe decor possible decortication um, and, and possible pleurodesis. Okay. So you get her to the OR. What are you going to do? So I would have anesthesia um, attempt to place a double lumen endotracheal tube. Um, I, if she's able to tolerate, I would attempt single lung ventilation. Uh, I'd place her uh, left lateral decubitus, the right side up. Um, I would start with a VATS approach, um, place the uh, trocar for the camera in about the fifth intercostal space, um, about anterior, in between the anterior and mid-axillary line. Um, and I would try to enter uh, once we have the lung down on that side. Um, that may not be an issue because the lung's already kind of entrapped, but still I would make a good effort at that. Um, then under direct visualization, I'd place them uh, two additional uh, ports, um, most likely ranging between the uh, fourth and seventh intercostal space, but kind of tri triangulating up towards the apex. Um, and I would take a good look and see which areas look organized, where the loculations are. Um, I would attempt to fully drain everything and then uh, break apart these major loculations. Okay. Um, so you stick your camera in um, and you see there's a lot of, a lot of um, fibrinous material all over the lung. Um, she still has a pretty decent size retained diffusion. Uh, and even after placing your um, second and third uh, uh, ports, uh, you're unable to really effectively get this, uh, rind this peel off. Hmm. Um, and she's tolerating the operation okay thus far? Yep, she's fine. Okay. Uh, so if that's the case, I think that um, there actually is probably going to be no benefit to this approach as it is right now. Um, mm -hmm. So what I would do is I would convert to a thoracotomy. Um, I would try to peel off as much of the rind as I can um, and then uh, apply some sealant and uh, do some pleurodesis to, to see if I can get the lung to skip the stick up. Okay. All right, now where are you gonna put your chest tube? So say they're, you're able to um, get her decorded, uh, you placed your sealant, although where are you placing your sealant? Um, I would, I would kind of see where, um, because invariably I think as I take down and de do the decortication, there are gonna be areas that uh, bubble up uh, with air leaks and I, I think I'd target those with the sealant. Okay. Um, and then where are you going to put your chest tubes? Uh, I would place one posteriorly and directed apically, uh, and then I'd place uh, like a flexible Blake tube uh, directed uh, posteriorly and into the diaphragmatic sulcus. All right. And then what? Um, and then we take her back to the ICU, or, or before I leave, I'd want to do um, uh, intercostal uh, inject some uh, local intercostally to do a nerve block. Uh, then I take her out to the ICU for her recovery. Um, and then I uh, kind of watch and see how she does in terms of her pulmonary status. Okay. Did you extubate her or did you leave her intubated? Uh, I would attempt a trial to, of extubation. Okay. All right, so she was successfully extubated in the OR. Uh, one of the ICU did fine and uh, discharged from the hospital happily and thanks you for saving her life. <laughs> All righty, so review, yeah? Yeah, thank you. That was challenging. <laughs>
Um, you did well. I'm glad that you guys you got to spend some time with us at the U, since I'm sure you got. I know you got to see some uh, decorts uh, up there. We did. We did. Yeah. Um, all right. So, um, how do you think it went? And looking at your going over your first um, scenario, anything you think that you would have mentioned in retrospect earlier or done differently? Uh, I think the first scenario especially raised my finger tone a little bit. Um, <laughs> it's definitely a, a frightening scenario um, that I, I luckily haven't had to deal with yet. Um, I think the challenging thing for me is visualizing what I do in the operating room, um, uh -huh. particularly because this isn't something that I've ever seen done before. Yeah. Um, so I definitely appreciate your feedback on what your approach might be to actually try to ligate this fistula or, or if even... The approach that I took was the was the appropriate approach. Okay, um, so I think that you did the right things in terms of telling initially when you got the call of having a kind of first um, first step at just overinflating the cuff to see if that would tampen on the bleeding, and it kind of worked. Um, and then you're able to get control of the bleeding a little bit better by inserting your finger into the stoma, which is the next step, and then applying some kind of anterior pressure against the sternum, which is correct. Um, luckily, in the scenario, it bought you some time to get down to the OR. Um, and then really the key, right, is trying to get or establish your airway because you know you're going to have to take your tracheostomy appliance out in order to kind of reevaluate and see what's actually going on. Um, right. And so, indicating from above is great, um, and having your anesthesia team going to help you with that. Alternatively, um, if they're unsuccessful or if there's too much blood, then trying to do a rigid bronchoscopy and, and using that to maintain your airway initially is, is always something that's available to you as well. Um, mm. And then when it comes down to doing your sternotomy, really, if your fingers, so sometimes when you get your oral endotracheal tube in, simply blowing up that cuff can, in the right place, can give you some control and you can always see if then you can potentially take your finger out because the idea of having to do a sternotomy with the saw with your finger right there is a little dicey, mm. um, but it happens. Yeah. So you try to, you know, stick a Raytech or a lap in the, um, to, you know, in the the stoma essentially to see if that will kind of buy a buy you a little bit of time while you get your saw at least um, in place. Um, I think otherwise, you know, getting your retractor in. So the first thing you do see, right, is all that thymic and pericardial fat and and your anominate. Mm. And so, um, and at this point, you may or may not have your finger in the wound again in order to hold pressure on your your anominate. But the idea you had the right idea about you know finding and locating your nominate vein, that generally needs to be retracted um, towards the head in order to give you some good visualization because the nominate artery and the arch right, is going to sit right under there. Um, right. And so just clearing off those, uh, working to clear off those tissues and, and um, then you have the right idea about uh, getting proximal and distal control, uh, getting that looped out so that you can at least um, uh, at least identify where your hole is. And then the key is, you know, resecting that little area of uh, where your fistula is off of your anominate artery and then over-sewing um, over the ends of your stump. Um, I think usually like... Uh, yeah, I think that part I had trouble visualizing how that would take place. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, a lot of times, you, depending on how friable the tissue is, you can get a, a right angle or, you know, you can get a right angle angle around it and at the very tip and then, um, you know, like a stick tie and, and um, like a two-layer closure just to over-sew the end. Um, okay. And then, and then I think the hard part was, you know, what to do with this big tracheal defect for you. And so... Um, closing your trachea, and we usually will use absorbable sutures for closing the, the tracheal defect. Um, and then it is hard to find a good muscle flap. Sometimes, you know, if you have really, um, really prominent uh, mucinal fat and thymus will work, um, it's uh, harder to find a big flap like uh, strap muscles because they don't really reach down there. So generally trying to find mm. the thymus there is, is useful, so not respecting all that. and. Um, and then the 
you know, key is like keeping that endotracheal tube in. Sometimes at the end, you'll have to bronch just to clean out airways. And so keep that in mind as well. Okay. Um, since they've been bleeding into their airway the whole time. Um, otherwise, I think you handled that uh, scenario nicely. Uh, just to be clear, so you completely ligate the uh, innominate artery? Correct. In this scenario. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. It, it, I mean, essentially, right, it's, it's, it's similar to if you're covering your, doing a T-bar and you're covering your subclavian. Usually you don't get steel or have ischemia in your arm. And presumably this person is otherwise young and should have good uh, a good circle of Willis and should be able to um, be fine with the, you know, flow from her left carotid, assuming that she doesn't have a bovine arch, so. And yeah. with the bovine arch, do you need to uh, divide the carotid and reimplant it or anything? No, so it kind of depends on where it is. Usually that the the origin of your um, carotid is the closer to the arch, and so you should, quite frequently, you'll be able to get around um, the kind of ongoing anomaly or common carotid, like common carotid, without having to sacrifice your um, your carotid artery. Okay. I can show you a picture later. <laughs> <laughs> great, um, great. All right, and so for your second um, second scenario, the empyema, I think that you, in terms of leaving these things went well, you know, it's kind of obvious if you if we're talking about a consolidation on the right side and she has an effusion and she has a white count, um, we're probably going down the road of your paranomonic effusion or a, an empyema. So you had your differential there, which is great. Um, I think that starting out and getting a CT scan, of the, uh, a CT chest, so depending on creatinine plus minus on using contrast as well, it'll, get, it'll give you more rim enhancement. Um, it's okay. going to give you a better sense of the rind if, you, if you're able to get contrast. It's not obviously not absolutely necessary, but it gives you a little bit, sometimes gives you a little bit more information um, about the rind and the kind of septations and oculations and things. Um, you place a chest tube, which is fine. I think that you'll you'll never be faulted for putting in a larger bore chest tube. Um, you okay. send all of the send all of the right uh, studies. Um, I would refer folks to to the AATS uh, consensus guidelines because um, they have a nice a set of guidelines on the management of empyema and. Um, usually, it starts with an ultra, uh, ultrasound guided thoracentesis to check your fluids, plus minus chest tube placement initially. Um, uh, sending uh, okay. you talked about. At some point, you did the right thing in terms of repeating your x-ray to make sure that you had uh, either resolution of your effusion and re-expansion of your lung, kind of seeing what things looked like. Um, right now, you know, the use of TPA and Dornase or fibrinolytics is controversial, but generally not a first-line thing that you do unless some, there are extenuating circumstances and the patient is unstable or not a candidate to go to the operating room for whatever, for whatever reason. So I'd say for board purposes, you're a surgeon and surgeons operate. And so the... Okay. So that, early VAT preferred. Yeah. Um, Sometimes I don't I don't know that you necessarily need to mention it. You know, a lot of times the anesthesiologist, as long as there's no fever, um, are okay putting epidurals in for pain control. But otherwise, you know, you had the right idea in terms of um, planning for um, a VAT. I think you got just a little turned around because you said that's possible decortication. We know we're going to do a decort, so it's you know <laughs> the right, right. VAT, possible thoracotomy for decortication. Um, that's right. Uh, and so making sure that you have the thoracotomy on there. I will usually also include a bronchoscopy on my consent because uh, quite frequently at the end, um, either before or after, in order to make sure that you can get really good lung re-expansion, you, you might feel obligated to go in and clean up the airways on that right lower lobe just to see. Since mm. she, has a, she hasn't had a bronch before and just to make sure that there isn't anything in there that you can clean out to help her get re-expansion. Um, Otherwise, I think starting bats is fine. Um, you know, whether depending on the CT scan, whether you put your, um, if you have a chest tube in, frequently you can place your um, scope through the same hole, uh, or okay. you could make a separate incision and, and um, kind of some of that's based on your CT scan. Some people would prefer to go kind of where you went, which is in the 
a fifth intercostal space in the anterior axillary, anterior axillary line in order to stick a camera in. I'd look around first because a lot of times once you look in, you stick your you stick an instrument, your grasper in, and start trying to peel things off. You can get a better sense of whether or not you're going to be successful staying that, or if you're going to need to convert before you put the, okay. a bunch of other sports in. Um, just style points, um, and then um, so as long as everyone's clear, you know, it's like stating your goals at, at some point. You know, the goal of de the decortication is to um, remove all of the infectious tissue and then also to affect uh, lung re-expansion. And so, you know, making sure that you clear off your um, the, the lower level along the diaphragm, posterior, anteriorly, and make sure that your fissures are nice and clear. Um, and then wide drainage. Um, usually, you don't need to put sealants in. So you do some. So sometimes you will, like you've mentioned, um, make little rents in the parenchyma. Um, but usually, just there's it's, there's so much blood in there anyways, and it's they're easy mm. inflammation. So you generally don't need to actually put sealants in unless it's you know unless it's a really large gash. So I don't think you need to mention that. Um, but otherwise, the other key is you know is trying to get them extubated as soon as possible because that positive pressure of staying intubated will um, will certainly prevent their lung from being fully expanded and it'll mitigate your no or continue to allow those small air leaks that um, that make it harder to ventilate and things. So trying to get them extubated as soon as possible is, is important. Great. That's fantastic feedback, ma'am. Thank you so much. Of course. Kevin, you now? Yep, here I am. So now this will be a good comparison to see, uh, you know, the resident that got the UW rotation versus the one that did not rotate on thoracic. So here we go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm sure it'll be just fine. Um, okay, so you are a 50-year-old, or sorry, you are fine. You're not 50. You have a 50-year-old <laughs> man uh, who has intractable nausea and vomiting. He's an alcoholic. Um, and he has excruciating pain, uh, chest pain, and came into the ER, and you are the person on call in the ER and have been called to see him. Okay. Uh, so, um, intractable chest pain after uh, vomiting makes me concerned for um, the worst-case scenario, which would be an esophageal perf. So I'm going to go see the patient, assess his ABCs, um, but it sounds like he's stable at this point in time. Um, yeah, he's tachycardic, heart rate's 110, but his blood pressure is fine. Okay, so I'd get uh, bilateral, um, you know, large bore IVs, uh, send labs off on him, um, and then I'd perform a focused uh, physical exam uh, looking for uh, crepitus um, and listening for lung sounds and doing an abdominal exam. Okay, um, so on physical exam, he <clears throat> is. He's tachycardic, a little diaphoretic, but otherwise um, has decreased breast sounds on the left side, and his abdomen is a little tender. Okay. I would uh, perform a chest X-ray while I'm in the ER as I'm calling radiology to get set up for my um, my esophagram. Okay, so he has a small left-sided effusion. Okay. Um, so I call radiology and tell them I want a to start. With Gastrographin um, upper GI to evaluate for a possible um, esophageal leak. I'd like to get some more uh, history on this patient too. Does he have any other pertinent uh, medical history or medications that he's on? He does not. He's a smoker. Um, he's not on any medications. Doesn't really see doctors and hasn't had any surgeries. And I'm sorry. Did you say he is an alcoholic? I, I can't he is. He is an alcoholic. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I'd go perform the gastrograph and swallow, and if uh, it's unrevealing, I'd uh, proceed with a thin barium swallow. Perfect. So, the swallow shows that he has ex uh, extra of contrast into his left chest, um, but some of the contrast goes distally into the stomach. Okay. Um, so, I would start him on uh, broad-spectrum antibiotics and fluid resuscitate him um, and cross and type him for two units. Um, I would um, call the operating room and uh, get them him set up for a um, a left uh, left 
thoracotomy in order to uh, repair his esophageal, um, his ruptured esophagus. Okay. So what would you consent him for? I would consent him for a uh, left thoracotomy uh, with esophageal um, repair, possible esophagectomy, and I would also consent him for an EGD. All righty. Um, all righty. So you perform your EGD and see that he has a uh, perforation in his distal esophagus just above the GEJ. Okay. Just above the GEJ. And I'd also had on that consent a uh, feeding tube, but um, okay. he's asleep now. I guess it's Celia. I'll call his, his wife. Um, okay. So uh, I'm sorry. You said I did the EGD and there's a, a perf. Um, just at the lower yeah. part of the esophagus? So. Yeah, okay. so um, uh, distal esophagus uh, doesn't involve the GEJ. There's no evidence of um, malignancy or strictures. Okay. Um, so it sounds like he has kind of the classic Boerhaave's. Um, so I placed the, the patient in the right lateral decubitus um, and uh, perform uh, single lung ventilation. It's not necessary, but if, if anesthesia is able to provide it, he tolerates it well. It could help exposure. Um, and I would, as I'm uh, making my thoracotomy in the seventh intercostal space, I would uh, plan for a uh, intercostal flap as I'm making my incision. Um, and then I would uh, evacuate out the purulence out of his chest and irrigate. Um, copiously um, at the beginning of the case, um, and then attempt to identify my anatomy. Uh, generally, um, I would uh, open up the, um, a lot of times the, um, the muscle defect is a lot smaller than what's um, in the mucosa, so I would make a myotomy um, longitudinally in order to identify my mucosal defect. Um, once I identified my mucosal defect, I would close it uh, with a like a 3-0 Vicryl um, running stitch um, and then do um, interrupted uh, silks for my uh, my second layer of muscle and then place a uh, intercostal uh, muscle flap to buttress um, this repair. Um, I would place two um, chest tubes in the chest uh, uh, to help adequately drain the mediastinum, one apically and one um, along the diaphragm. And at the uh, conclusion of my case, I would likely um, place a uh, jejunostomy tube. And I'm sorry, and when I, re when I perform that repair, I would perform it over a, uh, a 48 uh, French bougie in order to not, uh, to help hopefully prevent a stricture. Um, and then I would um, laparoscopically uh, um, place a uh, jejunostomy tube at the conclusion of the case for feeding access as he's going to be NPO for, for a long period of time. Okay. Um, yeah. So we'll go back for a second. So you actually arrive in the OR and he is unstable. Blood pressure is in the toilet. Anesthesia starting pressors. Um, and when you start looking for the looking at the esophagus, the tissue is just falling apart, and there's no healthy tissue. What would you do then? Okay. At this point, I would widely drain his chest. I would irrigate, um, and you know, if he if he's if he's tanking that badly, and I can't if I don't have time to do a, like a spit fistula, I, I think irrigation um, and, and widely draining will and making him MPO with IV antibiotics will hopefully get him to a point where we could take him back to the OR and perform an esophageal diversion. If at that, if at that time I'm able to perform an esophageal diversion, I, I would um, with a kind of a cerf cervical esopho esophago um, fistula um, would be my plan. Those would be my two options. So right now, if, he, if he's that unstable, I would just uh, irrigate out, uh, widely drain, um, and um, get him on broad-spectrum antibiotics. Okay. Um, are there any other options? Um, I mean, I think I could have uh, kind of divided the 
uh, devitalized esophagus and performed like a gastrostomy and a cervical uh, fistula. Okay. Alrighty. Um, so uh, you're able to you mobilize the esophagus in your and how are you going to form your um, esophagostomy? Um, I I would uh, make a a left uh, neck incision, um, carefully uh, mobilize the esophagus and um, proximally and distally in order to give me some length. I would uh, divide the esophagus. And then uh, generally what I've seen is um, just under, or just near the clavicle, um, you bring out the, uh, the distal aspect of the, the uh, cervical esophagus for drainage. Okay. Um, and would you plan on repair, reconstructing him later at all? Yes, um, if, if, if that were the case, um, you know, I could potentially um, use his his stomach is still okay. That I could potentially perform a uh, gastric conduit reconstruction. Okay, great. Um, next scenario: You have a 63 year old woman who is a former 30 pack year smoker, uh, no other medical history, um, and she was found to have a 10 millimeter peripheral right upper lobe nodule seen on chest x-ray, uh, which was part of a preoperative workup for a knee replacement. How would you proceed with management of this patient? Okay. Um, so you've told me already that she uh, has a pachyur history. Does she have any uh, previous history of lung cancer or any other cancers? She does not. Any other significant uh, comorbidities? Uh, no, she um, has uh, a little bit of hypertension, is on my center pearl, but otherwise no other medications and no prior surgeries. Okay. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty small nodule, but given her uh, smoking history, um, I'm concerned. So uh, I would go ahead and get a, um, a, CT, a CT scan uh, of the chest with a uh, in, co in combination with a PET scan in order to uh, help uh, further define this lesion. Okay, so the CT scan shows that you have a 10 millimeter peripheral nodule in the right upper lobe, smooth borders, close to the pleura, not calcified. Um, she doesn't have any significant mediastinal adenopathy. She has mild emphysema, upper lobe predominant. Um, and her PET CT scan shows that she has an SUV of three and a half in this nodule, but no other SUV uptake. Okay. Um, given uh, her smoking history um, and given the concerning findings, um, I would, uh, you know, give her two options of uh, you know, watching and closely uh, waiting and closely watching versus um, a wedge resection of this lesion. Uh, given her smoking history and SUV uptake by the PET scan, I would uh, counsel her that I would recommend the, um, a, a wedge resection of this after she had a completion uh, pulmonary function test and cardiac evaluation to make sure she uh, qualifies for surgery. Okay. Um... And what would you do? So she says, okay, I'll have a wedge resection. So what are you going to consent her for? And what's your procedure? Uh, like? So I'm going to consent her for a, uh, a wedge resection of this lesion, possible right upper lobectomy if we're unable to uh, identify it, um, and, and possible, uh, possible thoracotomy. Okay. Uh, what would you do with the? Would you do anything with her uh, stage her mediastinum at all? I, you know, I think this is controversial. But um, given that there, it's a small lesion, and that there was no adenopathy uh, seen on uh, PET CT, I, I think it's uh, reasonable to not do any further uh, preoperative staging. Okay. Um. So you. 
take her to the operating room and um, do your wedge resection. And she's extubated postoperatively on day one. Uh, oh, sorry, on in the operating room. Uh, and then on day one, she becomes uh, increasingly hypoxic. What do you do? Okay. Um, she's hypoxic. So um, is her chest tube, I would get a chest x-ray and is, are her chest tubes to suction or, or what are the status of her, ch her chest tube at this point? So her chest tubes were left to suction, yeah. Left to suction. And uh, what does my chest x-ray show? So your chest x-ray looks like she has uh, increasing bilateral fluffy infiltrates. Okay. Um, so I would send off labs and I would send off a, a cardiac panel, um, specifically troponins. Um, I would um, get a stat echo on the patient. Um, I'm concerned that she um, is going into heart failure, um, and I, I would kind of um, put her on, you know, high flow oxygen in the meantime, and um, be suspicious that she may need to be intubated if she doesn't improve quickly here. Okay, so she's on 100% high flow. She's Saturations are in the 80s. She's really working okay. to breathe. Yeah, at this point, I would uh, ask anesthesia um, to intubate her to protect her airway and to improve her because um, she's in respiratory failure at this point. Okay. And how would you manage her vent settings? Um, did my... Uh, is she in heart failure? Is Did her troponins uh, come back troponins okay, or is she... Proponents are uh, not elevated. No EKG changes. No EKG changes, yeah. That's important. Um, okay. Um, so she's having uh, bilateral pulmonary edema. Um, I, I would probably put her on a little um, increased PEEP um, to help uh, expand um, her lungs, but otherwise uh, conventional with just possible slight elevation in the PEEP. Um, and um, consider diuresis um, to help um, improve this pulmonary edema. Okay. Um, alternatively, so she's excavated in the OR, and then uh, on, you notice though that she has a fairly significant air leak in her chest uh, from her chest tube. Okay. Um, so I would. Um, and this is like day one, like post-up day one, that I see the, the significant chest, the air leak? Yep. Okay. Um, I would uh, give it um, 48 hours, and if there's no improvement, I would uh, attempt a blood patch. Okay. Um, she still has a, an air leak. Still has an air leak. Okay. Um, after that, I would attempt a through the chest tube. I would uh, attempt. Uh, first of all, one thing I would be doing is decreasing my suction in order um, on the chest tube. So hopefully not keeping this kind of air leak open with high the suction. Um, and then I would attempt a talk uh, kind of pleuresis through the chest tube to see if I can get it to seal up. Um, so decreasing suction didn't work. Uh, she developed a pneumothorax, um, some increased shortness of breath and a little bit of chest pain. Uh, and the talk through the chest tube goes in and yet there's no real changes on her CT scan, or sorry, her chest x-ray. She still has a, uh, a, a pneumothorax and she still has an ear leak. Hmm. Okay. Um. To this point, um, essentially have like a bronchopleural fistula, um, and she doesn't tolerate coming off of suction at all. Um, so I think I would uh, take her back to the operating room um, in order to attempt to operatively uh, fix this air leak. Okay. So what are you going to do? 
um, I would uh, go back in the same um, that I would um, in my same ports that I used for the the, the wedge. I would put her lung under um, you know water and have them insufflate and try and identify the air leak. Am I able to identify it? Um, yeah. So you have a substantial air leak from your staple line. From my staple line. Okay. Um, from here, I would um, I would probably make a uh, kind of a mini thoracotomy in an area where I could um, bring the lung parenchyma out. I would uh, overstow this area um, with an absorbable suture, and I would place um, a sealant over top of it. Um, and then I would um, complete the surgery and uh, put her to kind of uh, put her to suction overnight and, and see how she does. Okay, so um, after you suture the staple line and put the sealant on, uh, her air leak improves, and uh, next day her air leak is she has a small air leak with Valsalva, but otherwise uh, all but resolved. Okay, I would take her off of suction at this point in time and um, and then see how she closely monitor. Great. Um, so you take her off suction, she does fine. You're able to do the chest tube out and um, she's able to go home. Um, her pathology shows that she has a uh, one centimeter uh, adenocarcinoma uh, in her wedge section with uh, margins that are widely negative. Um, what sort of follow-up does she need, if any? Uh, she needs uh, close follow-up with um, a repeat uh, chest CT within uh, six months. Um, I would have her, I, I don't think there's any role for adjuvant therapy, but I would um, have her um, evaluated by oncology um, just to have the discussion. Um, and um, you know, for the first year, I would do a, two C, I'd do a CT scan at six months and then at one year, and I'd see her in my clinic at those times for that. Okay, great. All righty, so how do you think you did? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm sweating a little bit. Uh, they were tough, um, but they're very fair scenarios. So thank you. Yeah, of course. You guys did. You guys both did fine. You did well. I think it's very brave of you to do this um, and then podcast it to everybody. Uh, I don't know that I've just felt that confident if I were in your position later <laughs> in residency. So. It's, it's funny. We have a really hard time finding volunteers to help. So it's, uh... I, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised you can't find people to, to be on the receiving side of these questions. <laughs> Everyone seems to be on call Sunday afternoon. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. All those emergency surgeries happening in the in in the hospital. Um, exactly. How do you think how do you think the esophageal perforation went? Anything that you um, feel like would add in there sooner or later or change around? Um, yeah, I think the kind of standard esophageal perf that I read about went okay, but I I don't think I was prepared enough for the scenario um, where you know I, I can't repair it in the traditional fashion. Um, uh -huh. And, you know, so I, I, I don't really know um, what the exact right steps were in that, in that aspect of it. Okay. So I think that you did everything in order like you should have. So you did appropriate assessment. Um, you knew to get the esophagram, knew about gastrographin versus thinbarium. So even if it's negative by gastrographin, you'd still do the thinbarium. Um, I think that you caught yourself, and I think in terms of um, doing, adding on the EGD, um, potentially putting the peg, like a feeding tube in or a peg tube in or something at the time of surgery. Um, but otherwise, we're able to explain the procedure in terms of positioning, you know, single lung ventilation if the patient tolerated it, but knowing that it wasn't absolutely necessary. Um, Side of your incision in the seventh intercostal space, taking a muscle flap, I think, is important in the beginning, which is um, some people miss, and I think that's very useful um, so that you have something to buttress your repair with. And then making sure that you identify the mucosal defect fully. Um, I think that, um, you know, clo 
closing your uh, everybody everybody closes and repairs differently. Um, and so knowing that you're going to use an absorbable suture, then uh, silks to close your um, the esophageal muscle is perfect. Um, and then let's see. Um, I think that if when you got to the point where the patient was unstable, I think that you did a good job of kind of recognizing that it wasn't a position where you were going to be able to repair successfully just because the patient wasn't tolerating it. Kind of focusing on just mobilization of the esophagus so that you can set yourself up for a, a, a diverting esophagostomy. Um, and then making sure that you had some means of drainage in the stomach. So peg, like a peg tube or G-tube, open G-tube, mm. tube, either way, uh, in the stomach uh, and a feeding tube option so that you could set yourself up for success in the in the future. Um, uh, but otherwise, I don't think that you'll be, ex I wouldn't expect you to be able to fully explain the intricacies of um, forming your uh, diverting esophagostomy. Um, aside from the fact that you would, you know, try to get as much length on your esophagus as possible, and then when you pull it out into your neck, you know, um, transecting esophagus uh, above your um, above your perforation, uh, and then making and making sure that you've got good drainage of your stomach in the conduit um, below, um, and then making sure you've got good drainage, which I think you did. Um, in terms of the solitary pulmonary nodule. Um, you were able to recognize that the patient had a, you know, height was high risk based on smoking history as well as age. Um, I think that you, depending on where it could have gone, I think getting your CT scan is probably the first thing. So CT scan followed by PET CT scan is totally appropriate. Um, you can go into kind of varying amounts of discussion about Fleischner guidelines uh, regarding you know, size of nodules, which actually are changing, changed this year, essentially, in terms of um, now focusing more on, um, you know, whether or not the nodules are, you know, greater than less than six, eight, eight millimeters. But essentially, you know, you had the correct follow-up um, uh, for the nodules and the counseling about, you know, watching, waiting versus resection. Um, I think that Consenting her for the wedge and a possible lobectomy is appropriate. So generally, when you're in the OR, you'll send frozen um, in order to get your diagnosis, and then that's kind of a conversation of, you know, do you do the completion lobectomy if you're in there and and you know that it's cancer versus counseling the patient about, you know, I think gold standard previously for patients who could otherwise tolerate it were was lobectomy for. Um, all lung cancers, and now there's been a move, which I don't know that is particularly pertinent for the general surgery boards, um, but a move towards sublobar resection being acceptable um, for patients who, where it's otherwise their preference or their high risk, um, and um, making sure you got your PFTs, so making sure you have your PFTs beforehand uh, is appropriate. The... Um, air leak management. So I think that in terms of vent management for the ARDS, it's mostly just recognizing that this patient has had some event for whatever reason and she's going into ARDS. And so Latex and PEEP basically just like um, ARDSnet sort of information and, and management. Um, and then for the air leak, um, I think, you know, waiting, everyone will wait a different amount of time. It depends on how brisk the leak is and what happens with as you decrease suction, so decreasing suction was great. Um, I would not have done a talc pleuridesis or put talc in the chest tube before re-exploring the patient because of the ramifications of talc in your chest space, in your pleural space, just creating a large inflammatory reaction and just making, if you needed to go back. And in this case, it was a pretty simple fix. It was your staple line, and so you could either re-resect it or you could try to, you know, buttress it um, with either sutures or you could have just done a potentially another wedge resection uh, to clean up your staple line if needed, and that would be made a little bit more difficult with talc in there already. So I probably right. wouldn't have talc before, um, before just re-exploring the patient. Um, okay. And then follow-up for, follow for lung cancers is uh, guidelines are um, a CT scan every six months for the first two years uh, and then annually thereafter. Um, to make sure that there's no evidence of uh, either recurrence or um, a new, uh, new lung cancer development.
Would you send them to see an oncologist ever in a small negative? I, I, for the, well, so we don't know that she's no negative, right? We didn't check. Um, yeah. right. Really, for the patients that have a, the likelihood that a patient with T1A, so a small, um, like a very early stage lung cancer, cancer having positive nodes is low. Um, but uh, I, I generally would not. If I know that it's a T1A, um, I generally will follow them myself. Okay, great. They're, they're not well, wrong to offer um, evaluation with oncology, though. Okay. Well, I learned a ton, and we really thank you uh, for taking your time out to help uh, educate us in thoracic surgery. Yeah, Dr. Brookfield, yeah, that course. was fantastic. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for thinking of me, Wu. All you right, guys did great. Have a great one. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, bye. Until next time, dominate the day.